0: Uh, We are uh, week three of our series uh, working through the book of Daniel, uh, the series uh, we're calling Living in Exile. And the, the basic idea behind this whole series is that being a follower of Jesus in a culture that doesn't remotely hold the same values or the same morality or the same view of the purpose of life as we do is incredibly tough. We're going to be looking uh, again at the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. It gives us another brilliant example of how not to just kind of survive when you're kind of in, in exile or in this difficult environment, but to thrive uh, in the midst of it. If you remember uh, the story we're looking at, it was set uh, way back in the 6th century BC, that's 600 years before Jesus uh, appeared on the scene. And at this point in history, Babylon was like this kind of preeminent superpower in the world. And one of their main strategies was to invade and conquer the neighbouring nations and take all the top thinkers, the, the scholars, the artists, the government officials, the military officers, uh, people like Sanju and Naomi and kind of cart them off uh, and take them to live in Babylon and the whole idea was that over time they would lose their distinct culture and beliefs and start to adopt the Babylonian values and standards and as a result they'd stop resisting the claims of the pagan empire. But the book of Daniel tells a story uh, of one of those Jewish exiles Daniel uh, and three of his friends Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and tells a story of how they managed to kind of fully immerse themselves Throw themselves into Babylonian culture while never once flinching in their commitment day by day to honor God. Now, what we're going to be looking at today is actually one of the most famous stories in the whole book. Uh, You've probably heard it. If you want to follow on, we're going to be in Daniel chapter 3. The point we draw on the story King Nebuchadnezzar, who's the head of this global military superpower, uh, he's built. A 90-foot-high image of gold, oh, 90 foot. How how high do you reckon this ceiling is? What do you reckon? 30? Okay, so th- Tom, do you agree you, you've probably got a view on this? Thirty. 25, yeah, so. Yeah. Well, over three times the, 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 the height of this ceiling. You got that? So, so pretty high. Okay, so that 90-foot statue, this image, uh, and he's put it in this really kind of prominent place and he's surrounded the statue with a whole bunch of musicians, think kind of the band at the front kind of multiplied by a hundred or something, so loads of musicians and he's issued this order, this decree that anybody who happens to be close to that public space, who's able to see the image and it's going to be pretty hard to miss, uh, they must bow down and worship this image, this statue whenever the musicians strike up and start playing. Now, uh, Daniel, uh, he's not around at this moment in time. He's elsewhere, kind of in the capital, running the empire. But his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they are very much on the scene. Uh, And as we're going to see, they refuse to bow down to this 90-foot-high image. At which point, a whole bunch of troublemakers who are pretty jealous of their success, basically, they snitch on them. And that's where we're going to pick up the story in verse 14. Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you refuse to serve my gods or to worship the gold statue that I have set up? I'll give you one more chance to bow down and worship the statue that I've made when you hear the sound of the musical instruments. But if you refuse, you'll be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace. And then... What God will be able to rescue you from my power? I mean, talk about megalomania. Like, I'm more powerful than your God. I mean, that's the anger, the hostility, the kind of brazen boasting from this political leader. Don't know about you. I'm mighty relieved we've moved past kind of those kind of leaders on the global scale, kind of making those kind of boasts and threats and things or maybe not. Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty, but even if he doesn't, we want to make it clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue that you have set up. So, these three jewish guys in the story they aren't loud they're not disrespectful at all as no, so they keep saying your majesty your majesty very very polite but make no mistake to not bow down to this statue was not only a deeply subversive act it was a threat to the heart of the status quo, which is why, verse 19, Nebuchadnezzar was so furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that his face became distorted with rage. And so this kind of leader of this global military superpower, who thinks he control, can control everything and everyone, not only can't control Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, he can't even control his own face. His face becomes distorted with rage. He commanded that the furnace be heated seven times hotter than usual. Then he ordered some of the strongest men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace." And so they tied them up and threw them into the furnace, fully dressed, get this, in their pants, that's <laughs> a relief, uh, their, their turbans, their robes, and their other garments. And because the king, in his anger, had demanded such a hot fire in the furnace, the flames killed the soldiers as they threw the three men in. So it was very, very hot. Verse 23, So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego securely tied fell into the roaring flames. But suddenly, Nebuchadnezzar, who I imagine was some distance away, jumped up in amazement and exclaimed to his advisers, didn't we tie up three men and throw them into the furnace? Yes, your majesty, we certainly did, they replied. Look, Nebuchadnezzar shouted, I see four men Unbound, walking around in the fire, unharmed. And the fourth looks like a god. Then Nebuchadnezzar came as close as he could to the door of the flaming furnace without getting in the risk of getting burnt himself. Didn't want to come that close, but as close as he could and shouted Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego stepped out of the fire. Then the high officers, officials, governors, and advisers crowded around them and saw that the fire had not touched them. Not a hair on their heads was singed. Their clothing wasn't scorched. They didn't even smell of smoke. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, "'Praise to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. "'He sent his angel to rescue his servants who trusted in him.' They defied the king's command and were willing to die rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make this decree. If any people, whatever their race or nation or language, speak a word against the God of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, they will be torn limb from limb and their houses will be turned into heaps of rubble. So it's a deeply unpleasant character, but bear with it. He goes on to say, there is no other God who can rescue like this. Okay. Exciting story, but what exactly is it all about? I think there are at least three really important things that it shows us in our situations today. Here's the first one. It shows us the pressure we're under to keep our faith private. I think it's interesting. We're not actually told what the gold statue is of. It could be of Nebuchadnezzar. Could be of one of the Babylonian gods. But the leading theory is that it's actually some kind of an image or a statue of Babylon itself. It's thought that the image of gold doesn't represent one god, it represents all the gods and all the values, the beliefs, essentially the culture of Babylon. It's like Nebuchadnezzar knows that this is a pluralistic city. It's made up of people from many different countries and cultures and backgrounds. They all have their own religions and gods and different views. And so he's saying to everyone, look, I'm not asking you to worship the Babylonian gods instead of your god. I mean, very fair here. I'm just asking that you worship the Babylonian gods as well. He's saying, sure, you can worship whatever gods you want, but in public, you must bow down to the image. In other words, you had to privatize your faith. In private, you could worship the God of Israel in any way you wanted, but in public, your values and the way you lived had to be like everybody else. Now, whether it's Babylon or Birmingham I'd suggest all pluralistic societies do pretty much the same thing. What they all say is you certainly mustn't think that your religion has exclusive claims. You can be religious in any way you want in private if it helps you but in public you've just got to be like everyone else. Really, that's how all pluralistic societies work. They always force you to conform to the public culture by making you privatise your faith. And so, well, I'm guessing probably none of us is feeling the pressure right now to bow down to a gold statue. I mean, anyone feeling that pressure? None of us. The odds are there is something about the UK way of life that it is really easy for you to elevate or promote Over your primary allegiance to Jesus. Might be secularism, could be money, materialism, having lots of stuff, might be sexual freedom, might be issues of justice, might be issues of autonomy and individualism, like it's my right to be who I want to be and do whatever makes me happy. Whatever it is for you, it's really, really, really easy to worship Jesus as Lord in private or when you're here on a Sunday, but then in public to cave in and pretty much live like the people around you. For example, if you're a Christian and you're in the business world, let's say, and all the people around you are just kind of cutthroat and ruthless in their business practices, just kind of barely legal, but that puts a tremendous amount of pressure on you because They're either your competitors or your colleagues and either way the bottom line is, what are you producing? And if you're a Christian and you decide, look, I'm going to have to be as ruthless as everyone else just to survive, then you've kind of succumbed to the pressure. You're effectively bowing down to the image. You say you're a Christian you, you you believe all the things that Christianity teaches about attitudes and relationships and priorities and so on, but when it comes to how you're actually living your life in the world, you're pretty similar to everyone else. Let me give you another example. A couple of sociologists that, that they did this massive study of the sexual behaviour of younger people. That they selected two groups of unmarried, college-educated males aged 18 to 23. One group was raised in communities where they and the communities didn't think there was anything wrong whatsoever with sex outside of marriage. The other group was raised in churches, a bit like this one, and families, where they did believe that it was wrong to have sex outside of marriage. First group, the group says, look, I don't believe there's anything wrong with this. Only 23% of them in the survey were virgins. The second group, who say, look, deep down, I do believe there's something wrong with sex outside of marriage, 28% of them were virgins. In other words, there's practically no difference between the two groups. Pretty similar. And the sociologists look at those findings and say it's pretty simple. Your church teaches you something about sex and your culture teaches you something about sex. And you end up believing what the culture tells you. In other words, you say, well, I believe in Christianity. Of course I do. I I believe this and that in private. But in public, you're going to probably just be like everyone else. You've succumbed. You're bowing down to the image. It's like all pluralistic societies put this pressure on us to just kind of fit in with the public culture by privatizing our faith." But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had none of it. That they're deeply involved in the culture of Babylon. That they've received a Babylonian education. They're, they're working in the heart of the government. They're deeply involved, deeply engaged, very much a part of the city. They're doing what Jeremiah 29 said they should do as exiles. They're loving the city and praying for the city, working for the good and the prosperity of the city, engaging themselves in the cultural and economic activities of the city. But when they're asked to privatize their faith, they say, no. And we do not care what the consequences are. But let's be honest, that takes a a tremendous amount of courage, doesn't it? Now here's the thing, if you're a Christian living in Birmingham or the surrounding areas, they're pretty much the same as well, you're under the same pressure. And if you don't know that you're under the same pressure, the chances are you've probably already given into it. Part and parcel of living in a city like ours is we are going to come under tremendous pressure to conform. The question is, are you resisting? So first of all then, this story illustrates the pressure to keep your faith private. Secondly, it gives us a pretty impressive picture of what true faith looks like. Faced with Nebuchadnezzar's rage at them for not bowing down, what does Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego say? We'll go down to verses 17 and 18. We, we get here two of the most wonderful declarations in the whole Bible. They say, if we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. But even if he doesn't, we want to make it clear to you, your majesty, we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue that you have set up. They're effectively saying, we serve and love God for himself not for what we get out of him. You know, I can't tell you how many times over the years I've talked to people who have said, I just don't understand. I mean, I've trusted God as best I can. I've tried to live this really good life, but I asked asked him for some really important things and he didn't come through for me and so I'm beginning to question my faith. I'm even tempted to throw it in. Now, I really don't want to sound harsh, but I don't think that is really trusting God. It's like, if I obey God and I pray to God, then, kaching God will give me this agenda that's really important to me. And if this agenda doesn't materialise, then I'm out of there. I don't think that's really trusting God. It's more like trusting God plus this other really important thing And if all of that other stuff happens, then great. But if it doesn't all happen, well, that becomes a real problem for my faith. I think that's a million miles from what Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego are saying. They're going, we just trust God full stop, not God plus anything else. We obey him just because we think he is worth it. We trust him, we love him, we serve him for himself not for what we get out of it and that right there is an incredibly challenging picture of faith. That They're believing in God not for what they get out of him but simply for himself and as a result they can pretty much handle anything. You know behind this statement he will rescue us but if not it doesn't matter Behind that statement is something that I think all believers should know deep down. Yeah, God can always rescue you from death, but whether or not He does, He will always, if you're a believer, rescue you through death. You see, if you die in Him, then you're never, ever, ever, ever going to be separated from Him. You're going to Wake up with him in eternity in the new heaven and the new earth, where there's nothing but freedom and liberation and joy for all eternity. Therefore, ultimately, you are always safe. And so when Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego said, look, we're we're actually believing our God is going to deliver us but if not, we don't care. We're still not going to bow down to that image. They had already won. Before they were even thrown in the furnace, they had already won. It's like they were spiritually fireproofed before they were physically fireproofed because they trusted in God and God alone, not God plus this other thing. They could handle anything. And I suggest you can too. You really can if you're willing to not just trust God plus your agenda but simply trust God for who he is in himself. As Tim Keller puts it, trouble can take anything away from you except God. Therefore, if God is your greatest safety, security and a more powerful hope than anything else in the world, then you fear no trouble. So I've seen the pressure to keep your faith private. have seen this pretty challenging picture of what true faith looks like. Third and final thing I think this story at least hints at is the promise of suffering. The promise of suffering. There are a couple of things you need to know about living out your faith in public. The first is, it will upset people. It really will. Why? Because no matter how quiet and kind and gracious and polite you are, you will end up standing out from others. To say, I'm really sorry, but no, I refuse to join in with that is by default to say, because I think that thing is wrong. Which is why no matter how nice or polite or kind you are, people are going to end up being defensive and angry and insecure and even hostile towards you. So it will upset people. Second thing you need to know is it will also cost you something. It might cost you a sale or a promotion or even your job might cost you a friendship, might cost you in the not too distant future a night or two in prison, depending on the direction our legal system goes in. Thankfully, unlike Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we don't have to worry about being sentenced to death. But millions of our Christian brothers and sisters across the world are. Every day, around 270 followers of Jesus are put to death for their faith. In fact, from the year 2000 to 2010, 10-year period, it's estimated that one million Christians were put to death, mostly in the Middle East, throughout the Muslim world. That's more than at any other point in all of church history. Now, here in the UK we don't face that level of persecution. We face more like a soft discrimination, an emotional and social pressure to just bow down. The most, it will cost the majority of us, is a little teasing or a socially awkward moment. But Jesus said this, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also and the apostle paul adds everyone everyone who wants to live a godly life in christ jesus will be persecuted that's like a promise we love the promises of god don't we we kind of jot them down well here's another one for your notepad or whatever you want to live like a follower of jesus you will be persecuted That's a great promise right there. I think this is a really important lesson for us. Because over the years, I've talked to so many people who, I guess understandably, end up devastated because of suffering. But I think half the devastation flows from the fact that they are shocked that they even suffer in the first place. Listen, the reality is there are furnaces in life That there will be times when you'll be forced to walk through the equivalent of fire. I think it's just inevitable. As Peter puts it in 1 Peter 4, verse 12 Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery trials you're going through, as if something strange were happening to you. Don't be surprised. And that's what we see happening in this story with Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. Despite their deeply impressive faith in God, does God save them from going into the furnace? No, despite their faith, they end up in the furnace. But is God with them in the furnace? Yeah, absolutely he is. God's promise to all of us Is that if you trust me I will be walking with you in the furnace. Here's what God says in Isaiah 43, do not be afraid for I have ransomed you, I have called you by name, you are mine. When you go through rivers of difficulty you will not drown When you walk through the fire of oppression, you will not be burnt up. The flames will not consume you. So do not be afraid, for I am with you. And that is literally what we see happening here in verse 25. Look, Nebuchadnezzar shouted, I see four men unbound, walking around in the fire unharmed. And the fourth looks like a god. Question is, who on earth is this fourth man? Well, Nebuchadnezzar actually, I think, does a pretty good job of nailing who this is. Uh, The word for God there is Elohim. A better translation would be, he looks like a son of God. Then down in verse 28, he adds, praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, he sent his angel. Now in the Old Testament, there are angels, there's also the angel of the Lord. And when the angel of the Lord appears on the scene, it's not like Gabriel or one of the others who says, here's what God says. When the angel of the Lord appears, he speaks as if he is God. I think that's who's in the fire. Is God in a visible form? A God in a visible form, does that remind you of anyone else? Anyone else spring to mind? Uh, Jesus. Always the right answer and absolutely the right answer in this instance. It's pretty commonplace then to to see this fourth figure as a pre-incarnate manifestation of Jesus himself. Back in the 18th century, a guy called Jonathan Edwards, he preached a famous sermon called Christ's Agony. It was all about what Jesus suffered in the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is struggling, he's anticipating the cross, he's sweating these great drops of blood, He's, he's in turmoil, he's in agony. What's the agony? Well, here's how Jonathan Edwards interprets it. Edwards says about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, he had then a near view of the furnace of God's divine wrath, into which he was about to be cast. A furnace vastly more terrible than Nebuchadnezzar's furnace. Jesus was brought in the garden to the place where he stood and viewed its raging flames. He saw the glowings of its heat that he might know what he was about to suffer. This was the thing that filled his soul with sorrow. And darkness, this terrible sight, as it were, overwhelmed him. Listen, the gospel is that you and I, because if we're being honest, none of us loves God with all our heart, all our soul, all our strength, all our minds, none of us consistently loves our neighbor as ourselves, because of that, we deserve to be cast away from God. We deserve to lose God forever when we die. And because we're built, we're made, we're designed, we're wired for God's presence, to lose God forever means to be in absolute agony. It, it, it's like hell, it's a furnace. But Jesus came to earth, and on the cross, he experienced that agony, that wrath that we deserved. If you like, he was thrown into the ultimate furnace. The furnace that we all deserve. And that's how we're saved. When we believe in him, none of that agony, none of that ultimate wrath comes onto us. You know, right at the end of this passage, Nebuchadnezzar, he speaks with tremendous prophetic insight when he says, there is no other God who can rescue like this. Take a look at every other religion. Every other religion has a way of salvation, a way to rescue you. But what is it? Well, our secular culture, which is the equivalent of a religion, is constantly telling us that the meaning of life is to gain happiness. But if that's true, then suffering destroys meaning If you go through suffering, if you're unhappy, you have no meaning in life. You have no hope. By the way, it also kind of destroys the illusion that we ourselves have the strength and the competence to rule our own lives and save ourselves. Suffering wakes us up to the reality we can't. We don't have the answers within ourselves. Or if you take the religions that have a belief in some kind of a higher cosmic being, that their basic message is always and everywhere that if you live a good life, if you do this and if you do that, then God will save you. Now if that's what you believe, what does that do for you when suffering comes? Well, when suffering hits and you're trying to live a good life, you're either going to hate God because you're saying, I've lived a good life, why are you letting this thing happen to me? So you'll end up in despair that way or you'll beat yourself up. You'll get down on yourself. You're going to say, well, I obviously haven't lived a good enough life because I'm suffering and you'll have despair that way as well. In other words, every other religion, every other God gives you a way of salvation based on your own good works and performance and merit and effort. So when you go into the furnace with that set of beliefs, it's always going to destroy you it'll always wipe you out. You'll either be mad at God or mad at yourself or mad at both at the same time. But if you say to yourself, when you get thrown into the furnace, when you walk through suffering, look, this is tough and I don't want to be here, but it's actually a smaller furnace. I'm not being punished for my sins here. Jesus bore all of that already, so that's not what's going on. I know that Jesus was thrown into the ultimate furnace for me and if he went through that steadfastly for me, then with his help, I can walk through this steadfastly for him. Do you see? If you remember Jesus being thrown into that ultimate furnace for you, there's a way you can sense and know in a very real way his presence with you In the smaller furnaces of this life. And there's a way that you can come out the other side through the pain, through the suffering, through the real sorrow, still able to celebrate the truth that no God can rescue, no God can save like our God. As we've seen, that belief, that conviction, it enabled Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego to live courageous lives of faith in Babylon. And I suggest we need that same conviction today if we're going to thrive in a city like ours. And if we resolve to live like this, I don't want you to underestimate the impact it can have on the people around you and even on the culture at large. Very quickly, we're done with this. Just look at the end of the story. Daniel 4 verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar, sent this message to the people of every race and nation and language throughout the world. Peace and prosperity to you. I want you all to know about the miraculous signs and wonders the Most High God has performed for me. How great are His signs? How wonderful His wonders? His kingdom will last forever. His rule through all generations. This letter went out from the most powerful man in the world to the whole of his empire. All because three people had the courage to resist the pressure to follow everyone else. They refused to bow to the pressure to keep their faith private. Have a look around. There are a few more than three people in this room right now. If three people, empowered by the Holy Spirit, could do this to an entire empire just dream a bit. Just try and imagine what all of us could do to our city, to our school, to our place of work, to the people around us.